And starting in verse 6, this is the Word of God. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite woman did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep, and he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth with the top of it reaching to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring." Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that had been under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the, city, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way and I, that I go, I will, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Father, I ask this morning that you would come and speak. Uh, to your people. And I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen me, for I'm a little shaky and a little tired. And therefore, it's a good thing, because when I'm weak, you're strong, and you show yourself strong. So I just ask that you do that now, for the sake of your people and for the sake of the name of your own dear son. Amen. I think sometimes um, when we look at biblical characters, uh, it can be hard to think of them as normal human beings just like us. Uh, they often seem to live in a state of spiritual existence and closeness to God that you and I probably don't experience on a regular basis if we experience it at all. But when we get to Jacob, um, it, maybe it's a little easier to see ourselves. Uh, Jacob is a, a trickster. 
Jacob is deceptive. Jacob is a schemer. Jacob is the kind of person who will bend the rules to get what he wants. And when we pick up Jacob's story here in Genesis chapter 28, uh, we ought to be mindful, if we know our Bibles, of all that has gone before. Jacob and Esau, his brother, were fraternal twins, but Esau was just a, a few minutes older. He was born first. And in that culture, in that time, the birth order was significant. It was very important. And Jacob comes out of the womb after his brother, and he's literally holding on to his brother's heel. He's grasping after his older brother. And his name reflects that. And that little episode there right at his birth is a statement from God about his character and the trajectory of his life from then on. And Jacob, the name Jacob literally means he takes by the heel, which is a Hebrew way or an Eastern way, Middle Eastern way of saying he's a cheater. Esau comes out and, uh, and he's hairy. And so we've got uh, Esau, uh, who's hairy, and Jacob, who's tricky. So we've got tricky and we've got hairy here, the two twins. And when he and Esau are, are a bit older, their personalities really begin to manifest themselves. As I said, Esau is a, a hairy guy, apparently full of testosterone. He liked to hunt. And Jacob was a smooth or a hairless man who liked to hang out with mom at home in the tents, studying and learning to cook. One day Esau comes back from a hard day of murdering wildlife, and he's really hungry, and Jacob has just cooked up a nice lentil soup. And Esau is like he always is, mmm, me hungry, give soup. And Jacob says, sure, I'll be glad to trade you uh, some soup uh, for your birthright. And, and you can have all the soup you want if you'll give me your birthright. And Esau was like, okay. And, and he did that. And he, he even swore an oath that he would do that. And in doing so, he despised something that should have been a treasure to him. But you see, it was a spiritual treasure. And Esau was a, a carnal man. He was a worldly man. He cared about worldly things. Let me ask you this morning, do you value spiritual treasures? Do you value them above worldly things? The flash and the glitz and the glam of worldly things? Do you, do you value spiritual treasures? Are they the most important treasures to you? You know, they're the only ones you could actually keep. Everything else will break or get stolen or rust or get lost or eventually fade away. A few years later, Jacob tricks his dad into giving him Esau's birthright. And then, inexplicably, Esau is angry about it. I mean, he said, I swear, I'll give you my birthright. Now, now dad hadn't, hadn't been in on that conversation, so Esau had to trick dad. I could see dad being angry at him, and looks like from the text he was more than a little miffed. But Esau is angry. He's like, you took my birthright. And he's so angry that he wants to kill his brother. He is biding his time until he has an opportunity to murder his brother. And, and, and so 
uh, he gets angry and he wants to murder his brother. And not only that, we find out that Esau has also married a Hittite woman, a, a daughter of the Canaanite people. And this was a pagan people whom God had slated for destruction and mom and dad were not pleased. And that's the kind of man Esau is. He's kind of a pig. He's a slave to his appetites. He wants what he wants when he wants it. And when he's hungry, he wants soup. When he's happy, uh, and he's happy to swear an oath to give up his spiritual treasures to get his soup. When he wants to be with a woman, he just picks a pretty girl and marries her, even though mom and dad don't approve. When he wants his birthright blessing, it, it doesn't matter that he bargained it away with an oath for a bowl of soup. He wants it, and he wants it now. And when he doesn't get it, he's, he's prepared to pitch a fit. He's prepared to commit violence. Esau was, was a big baby. Is what he was. He was a 40-year-old man baby. And all he cared about was worldly stuff that he wanted from moment to moment. Now, I'm going to tell you, don't be like Esau. Don't be a, a, a man baby. Don't be a woman baby. Don't be a little girl in a woman's body. Grow up. There's some of you that think, well, my body's old, but my mind and my personality can continue to still be 12. No, it can't. Grow up. Grow up mentally. Grow up emotionally. Most of all, grow up spiritually. Well, it's time for Tricky to get the heck out of Dodge for a while because Harry's going to kill him, and Mom doesn't want that, so she makes some excuses about sending him to visit her brother in what is today Iraq so that he can find a nice girl to marry. And so Jacob takes off, and he starts a journey that's... Uh, a rather lengthy journey. You know, you couldn't go from Israel straight across to what the Gulf of uh, uh, the, the Persian Gulf. You, you couldn't go straight across because there was a desert in the way and you, you would die. So the way that they traveled was they would go north into Turkey where there was water and food and villages and things like that. And then they, and then they would come all the way down the coast of the Mediterranean to get to the promised land. So it's a it's not a, a direct journey. It's a long journey. And, and he starts his journey and he gets to a certain place and the light is failing and it's just time to camp. It's the, the day's travels are done. And, uh, and he thinks that he's got there accidentally. And this is, a, this is a critical place in his life. He's leaving home. He's alone. He can't go back. Dad's not happy with him. His brother hates him and wants to kill him. The future is uncertain. He's facing the prospect of living in a, a foreign land as a stranger for years and years. And on this night, he stops in this place. And it's a holy place. Now, <clears throat> I don't know why he does this, but he picks a nice rock for a pillow. And uh, I, don't, I don't know why. And, and, and he falls asleep and he has a dream. And it wasn't just a normal dream. It's one of those dreams that is talked about in Hebrews chapter 1 where it says in former times God spoke to his people in many different ways. And dreams were one of the ways in which he spoke. And they were readily distinguishable from your ordinary kind of dreams. And so he falls asleep. <clears throat> and in this dream he sees a ladder or a staircase. The exact meaning of the Hebrew is not clear here. And the bottom of the staircase touches the earth, and the top of the staircase touches heaven. And Jacob sees 
angels ascending and descending on this staircase. Now, presumably, these angels are descending to carry out tasks on earth that God has given to them and then ascending back to heaven to report on their activities and their progress. Now, we know from the book of Hebrews that angels are ministering spirits who are commissioned by God to serve and to protect the people of God. And Jesus seems to indicate that at least children and perhaps every Christian has a guardian angel associated or assigned to them. But at this point in history, there are only three people among the people of God who need to be looked after. There's Isaac, there's Rebecca, and there's Jacob. But, but the text seems to indicate a multitude of angels ascending and descending, which means they're going to do other things. What are they doing? We don't know. But there's a lesson here that we can draw from that, that God is at work in more places and in more ways than you yourself can possibly imagine. You can be sure that God will not contradict himself and that God will not do something that is against his character, but you can never pigeonhole God. You can never put God in a box. He has things going on that you know nothing about that you haven't even dreamed of. And all of a sudden, he'll do something, and you'll turn around and look and see that he's done something in the most unexpected way, through the most unexpected person, at the most unexpected time, and you're like, huh, he didn't tell me he was doing that. No, he didn't. You've got, there's so much going on, and God is busy doing things, answering our prayers, paving the way, and he's doing that here. Well, there's this ladder, right? This staircase. What, what is this ladder or this staircase, really? Well, it's a point of contact. It's a point of contact between the physical world and the transcendent spiritual world. It's a bridge, if you like, between two realities. Why is that important? Well, it's significant for a number of reasons. First of all, it's significant because we live in a day where there are atheists who deny that there even is a spiritual reality. They, they say that the, that the world of spirits and of spiritual beings and spiritual things does not exist. And we have to say, no, there is a spiritual world. There are spiritual beings. We also live in a day when even professing Christians view God as remote and far away, and very often we act as though there's a gap between the physical world and the spiritual world that is unbridgeable. It's, it's easy to become a kind of a, an orthodox evangelical reformed deist. God's not doing much, and I kind of like it that way. He's staying safely over there, and he's not doing anything that would make me feel uncomfortable or unwelcome, and that's just not true. For instance, I can guarantee right here, right now, in this building, there are a multitude of spiritual beings. Right now, there are both angels and demons in this room, and they are listening to what I'm saying, and they're watching what you're thinking, and, and they're trying to distract you from anything that the Holy Spirit would do through the preaching of the Word of God. When the Bible is open and when the Bible is read, they're trying to snatch that word away. We have, the, 
we have the authority of Jesus on that. They're, they're trying to keep you from understanding it. They're trying to make it seem boring or distasteful to you and unappealing. They're trying to arouse your anger or your lust or your pride or your love of cruelty to distract you. Careful, reasoned, sincere prayer, we're told, can hinder them in their efforts. Resist the devil, says James, and he will flee from you. And, and resisting them and the things that they suggest will cause them to be removed from you at a distance and leave you alone, at least for a little while. But most of you live your day-to-day -day life without taking that into account. Why? Well, it's because at bottom, where, you, where you're prepared to act as, uh, on what you believe, you really don't think that the spiritual world is interacting with the physical world. You really believe it's kind of far away. You really believe that this is all there is for right now. No wonder we're slaves to sin so often. And, and it's interesting, isn't it, that, that Jacob believed that too. And that's really the only explanation for his behavior. He, he, had, he was always trying to manipulate to get what he thought he needed because he thought, I'm all alone. I got to look out for me. There's nobody else going to look out for me. And, and, I, and, and I, can't, I can't trust that anybody ever would. So I got to take care of myself. And so that's what he did. He spent his whole life manipulating and scheming and tricking everybody around him to try and get what he wants. This ladder or this staircase is also significant in another way. You see, it, it's a sort of a, a prophecy in parable form. The, this story of Jacob's staircase or Jacob's ladder um, appears here in Genesis 28, and then the scripture never references it again except one other time. And if you'll open your Bible to, to John chapter 1, if you've got a Bible, and if you don't, get a Bible. John chapter 1 and verse 43. We see the only other time that this story is referenced in the scripture. You know, very often scripture comments on scripture, clarifies it, makes it fuller, explains it. Well, here's one of these, the only place where this story is unfolded any further is in, is in John chapter one and verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the sun of man. You see, Jesus is the ladder. Jesus is the staircase. 
Jesus is the one who joins heaven and earth. And it is only by Jesus that you may ascend from earth to heaven. Well, if that's not enough, then God himself appears. And you will notice if you're paying attention to your text in Genesis 28, that there's a note on verse 13. And the verse could be rendered either, and behold, the Lord stood above it, as in above the the top of the ladder looking down, or it may also be rendered, and behold, the Lord stood beside him, that is, standing right next to Jacob. Either way, the Lord is near, and he's watching him, and he speaks to him, and he speaks to him very gracious words. This is the birthright that Esau piddled away right here in these words. He basically reiterates the covenant he made with Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, and he promised to be with Jacob and to protect him in all of his journeys to foreign lands until he's brought safely back to the land of Canaan, which will be given to their descendants. And God says to him, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, that's an interesting way for God to put it. Because God is still doing the things that he promised Jacob. He hasn't finished with what he promised to Jacob. He said, through you I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth, all the peoples of the world, through your descendants, through you. Well, Jesus is the one who he had in mind. And Jesus is still blessing all the nations of the earth. He's still bringing people from every nation and tribe and language and tongue into the kingdom of God. He's still saving them. So when is God going to leave Jacob? Never. He's never going to leave him. He's always going to be at work fulfilling his promises. And Jacob wakes up from this dream, and he's in awe. He knows this is something special. He knows that the Lord has spoken to him, and he says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. God has been here all along. The ladder has been here all along. The angels have been ascending and descending all along, but but I couldn't see it. It was always there, but I didn't have eyes to see. And because he couldn't see it, he behaved as though God was absent, as though God's power was absent. But God was never absent. And Jacob needed to have his eyes opened. You know, from time to time, I've spoken to you in the past of this idea that you have a mental map of reality and and of what you think is true and what is not true, and you navigate and make decisions as you move through your life based on that mental map. And if your mental map does not include God and spiritual reality as the bedrock of reality, then you're going to navigate through your life in essentially in a wrong way, sometimes in a tragically wrong way. Well, Jacob's mental map was all messed up, and God just kind of went beep, and gave him a peek, and, and, and he said, God is in this place. And he's, and he's starting to get his mental map of reality. But he's not there yet. It, he's, his eyes have been opened a little bit. 
but he's not there yet. In 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, uh, Paul says, the natural man does not accept the things of God. They are foolishness to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, I've got my mental map of reality. It doesn't include God and spiritual things, and thank goodness it doesn't because that would, that would cause me to act in all kinds of ways that are, are, are just illogical and against truth, and I'll just be a sucker or a victim or a nitwit or something else. And God comes along and says, no, there's a whole universe of reality, a spiritual universe of reality. You cannot see, you cannot understand and believe spiritual things unless God comes to you and opens your eyes by the Spirit of God. You know, I was, uh, we just got back from our annual post-Christmas Christmas uh, with our, our family. Been, we've been doing this for a lot of years. Um, pastors don't get Christmas Eve and Christmas Day off. So we have a family celebration after, and the whole family has adjusted itself to my peculiar schedule, for which I am very grateful. And, um, and uh, my, my niece was there, and she's just finished her first semester at college. And she seemed a little not excited. And I said to her, how's school going, Tori? And I expected her to talk about classes being hard or adjusting to you know, being on your own or things like that. She said, it's really hard, kind of. I said, how so? She said, well, all I want to do is live for Jesus. And the people that I'm surrounded with, they don't just not believe in Jesus. They hate him. They, they're always talking bad about God. They're always mocking God and people who believe in God. And she said, I don't know what to do. It hurts me. It hurts my heart. And, and I, I, I feel like I ought to say something, but I also know that they're probably not going to listen to me and that it probably will damage my relationship with them. They, in other words, they're not going to change and become more courteous. They're, they're just going to ostracize me. And I said, that's very hard, isn't it? She said, yeah. I said, if you were Jewish or a Muslim and they were making jokes about Allah or Judaism, and you said, hey, I'm, I'm Jewish or Muslim, they'd be all over themselves. Oh, sorry, sorry, we don't want to offend you. But because you're a Christian, and because they think they were raised Christian, then they're just hateful and spiteful. I, I want to tell you something, young people, especially young people. It's something the old people need to hear too. But a, a Christian church, a Christian family, Christian home, a Christian school. These are all places of great opportunity for spiritual things. But they're also places of great spiritual risk and peril. There's a, there's a kind of a perversity to that, isn't there? Because to dwell day in and day out among God's people with God's word and to still be unconverted, to still have blind eyes and deaf ears and a hard heart, it can sear your conscience and it can harden you against spiritual things. It, it, and what will happen is you'll leave the house and you'll think, 
glad I've got that out of my system and that's behind me. And you'll go off to college and, and we get all these reports of people going off to college, young people going off to college and quote unquote losing their faith. They're not losing their faith. They're just finally able to freely express what they've always thought and what they've always wanted to do. It's easy for the lost Christian student, the lost, or, uh, I'm sorry, not Christian student, the lost student in a Christian home, the lost churchgoer, to assume that they know everything that they needed to know about spiritual things and they've seen through it. They're too smart and too cool and too sophisticated and too intellectual to buy any of it. And if you stay close to it when you feel that way, you come to resent it and to hate it. And you get around other people like Tori's friends and, and you, you're going to be tempted because they'll find you. They will. And you're going to be tempted to say, yeah, I, I grew up with all that stuff. I know what it's all about. I see right through these stupid Christians and their sky daddy. And you'll say all kinds of mocking things in mocking tones with your mocking friends. I know all about that. No, you don't. You know nothing. And you never did. Because your eyes are blinded by the God of this world and you can't see what's here, just like Jacob. The aroma of the bread of life is all around you, but it's a stench of death in your nostrils because of your own decaying heart. And except the Spirit of God come and open your eyes, I must warn you that there is a day appointed when you will die and the, the jaws of hell will gape wide beneath you and on that day you will perish everlastingly. Don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. Well, I, I don't know how anyone could see what Jacob saw and remain unconverted. But you can, you can see it in verses 20 through 22 of Genesis 28, can't you? You can see what he says here. He says, I love this. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. Then the Lord shall. If God does all these things for me, then I'll let him be my God. What a fool. If, if. Almighty God, if you will do what you have just promised me you're gonna do, then I'll let you be my God. You aren't my God now, but if you come through for me like you said, then I'll follow you. And you know the funny thing? God didn't say, get out of here, fool, I'm done with you. He didn't do it. He should have. He would have been right to. But God is merciful. And God did keep his promises. But God also put him through the ringer. And God sometimes will put you through the ringer in order to get your soul. 
He, he sends Jacob to the lands of the east, and, and there he meets someone just as crooked and as nasty as Jacob is. And this man became not only his boss, but his father-in-law. And Jacob was under his thumb for 20 years, and that guy was always trying to cheat him. And Jacob was like, huh, this is what it's like to live with me. And Jacob is like, he, he, he starts to figure out, this isn't very nice. I don't like it when people treat me this way. And, and he only gets out after, by fleeing at an opportune moment. And even after that, father-in-law chased him with a bunch of thugs, and they had to have a little powwow, and his life was in danger, and the lives of his children were in danger. This guy could have just taken his girls and his grandkids home, and there wasn't anything Jacob could do about it, except that God intervened. And in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob is getting ready to go in to the promised land. He's getting ready to go back home. He's getting ready to face his brother. It's been 20 years. He doesn't know whether Esau's in a bad mood or a good mood, whether he hates him or whether he's going to love him and receive him. And so he starts scheming again. And he, and he breaks up the, 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 the flocks and the herds and the kids and the servants, and he sends them you know, different ways so that if one gets attacked, at least he won't lose everything. And then he himself goes forward alone. And in Genesis chapter 32, he's alone at night once again, and he's not too awful far from Bethel where he saw God 20 years earlier. And on this night, at this time, God doesn't just show up in a dream. God shows up in bodily form. I personally think that this is what's called a Christophany. This is, an this is a, a, a manifestation of the second person of the Godhead before he was incarnate as Jesus Christ. I think there are three or four of those in the Old Testament. And here comes this man, and he starts wrestling with him. And he wrestles, and they wrestle, and he wrestles, and they wrestle, and they wrestle till dawn. And God says, let me go. And Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And God did bless him. But God also did something else. God touched his thigh and put it permanently out of joint. And for the rest of his life, the mark that Jacob was a different man could be seen with every step that he took. He limped with God. And, and God looks at him and says, I'm changing your name now. You get a new name because now you've got a new character. I finally got your heart and I'm keeping it. And your name will no longer be Jacob. You're no longer tricky. Your name is Israel, he who wrestles with God. And every step after that, Jacob walks with a limp because he's encountered God. Some of you are walking with a limp right now. Maybe it's not one you can see. Maybe it's a limp in your mind or in your heart, or in your spirit. The process of getting you 
and getting your soul into safe harbor has been hard on you. And you're sore. And you think, I'm probably never not going to be sore. Maybe not. Maybe you're going to walk with that limp the rest of your life. It's okay. It's okay. God has ordained that limp. He's ordained that he will walk with you and sustain you in the way. And that your life will just be marked by this limp. I'll tell you something else, though. When you've got a limp, whether it's one you can see or one that you can't, you see somebody else with the same limp, you know. And you can speak to them. You can speak to their heart. And you can tell them, I got this limp wrestling with God. Oh, I resisted him for a long time. I did everything I could think of to get out from under him. He still found me. He put me through the ringer to get my soul because I was so stubborn. I'm the kind of person who said to him, if you'll do what you've said in the Bible that you're going to do for me, then maybe I'll think about letting you be my God. And, and I did. And he did. And now I'm limping. Would have been easier to come to him 20 years ago. Life would have been a whole lot more pleasant. But here we are now. And he's going to see me safely home. You know, I, I don't know how someone can come face to face with God and still remain unconverted, but I do know somebody who did, more or less. I, I mentioned last week that I would talk a little bit more about my friend Ron Larson. Ron was a, a rough guy from a rough family. Um, Ron was a hard-drinking, motorcycle-riding go-between for a bunch of the gangs, the Hells Angels and the Banditos. And he was somebody that was considered independent and trustworthy to, when those people needed to conduct business with each other or communicate with each other. And I still to this day don't know what he did to make his living other than things that are probably illegal. But he was riding his motorcycle in rural Wyoming and he had an accident. Somebody hit him head on. And he died three times in the ambulance on the way to the hospital in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And I talked to him after he came back to Sturgis. He wanted to see me. He came to church because I was his brother's pastor. And, and he said, I, I, I died. I said, yeah, I heard that. He said, I was standing at the gates of heaven and whoever it was that was in charge of the gates looked at me and said you can't come in here your place is down there and I looked where he pointed and he said I saw hell and he said I said what was it like Ron he said I can't describe it but the thing I remember was the stench Hell smelled so bad. And then the person at the gate said, or you can go back to earth for a little while. And Ron woke up in the hospital. Well, you'd think after an experience like that, he'd be 
he'd be ready to get right with Jesus. He'd be ready to give his heart to the Lord. He'd be ready to have his sins forgiven. And if you think that, you're wrong. Because <laughs> he went out and he just lived exactly like he'd lived before. And every once in a while you'd get these calls and I'd see him in, the, like I can remember one time I, I went to the hospital to visit somebody and he's in the emergency room with delirium tremens. They're trying to get those under control because his drinking was so bad that uh, anytime he stopped, uh, he was in danger of actually dying from some kind of seizure. And, uh, and I thought, man, I, how could this, he came to church for a while, he and his live-in girlfriend, and they, they listened for a bit, and then he was like, ah, I'm out of here, I don't need this. And he went and lived exactly the same way. You know, he died last year, I believe it was last year, finally. And uh, I talked to his sister-in-law, and she said, you know, Ron passed away. I said, did he? I said, I never met a man who was so determined to go to hell in my life as your brother-in-law, Ron. And she said, well, he got right with the Lord, I think, right at the end. And hallelujah that God would take one like that. And so I have every expectation that when I pass into glory, there will be Ron Larson standing there. But you can literally die and stand at the edge of hell and know that's where you're going and know I don't want that and come back and still live like hell. That's how crazy sinners are. What's going on in your heart as you're facing the new year? What's going on? Are you really walking with God? Or are you just biding your time so you can get out from under whatever yoke you're under and live life like you want to live it? Well, I promise you, if you do that, you go where Ron didn't go. And you won't have anybody to blame but yourself. Father, if I have spoken anything true, if I have spoken anything good and right, and helpful, please cause it to be sealed on our hearts. If I've spoken anything untrue, mistaken, or wrong, please cause it to be forgotten. We pray this in Jesus' name.